beginning at verse 1. Isaiah 52, verses 1 through 10. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the, at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. It's a great joy to greet you all in the name of the Lord. We are gathered this morning by his invitation to hear his voice. It's an honor to share with you the bread of life, and we pray that its message will burn in our hearts indelibly to the praise of his glory. Our God reigns. The gospel according to Isaiah. In 1993, my wife Ellen and I paid a visit to what had been until two or three years earlier the Soviet Union. Russia was the land where my father had grown up, but the Ukraine was the land of his birth and the land from which my maternal grandparents had emigrated to Canada in 1905. But on December 25, 1991, the Soviet flag flew over the Kremlin in Moscow for the last time. When Ellen and I arrived in Moscow at the end of September in 93, less than two years later, we were on a mission for God, having been assigned the thrilling task of teaching the very first class in the fledgling Moscow Theological Seminary operated by the Baptist Union of Russia. But what a great moment that was, the evening of October 5, 1993, when we gathered in Central Baptist Church 
18 students from across nine time zones, a handful of faculty who would begin teaching the next day, the head of the Baptist World Alliance and leading representatives of Baptist churches of Sweden, Germany, South Africa, and the United States. During the celebration, someone walked up the center aisle and handed a note to the presiding official saying that the opponents of President Yeltsin holed up in the White House, Russia's parliament buildings, had broken out and they had stormed the Astankana television tower. Now, not knowing any Russian at the time, Ellen and I had no idea of the seriousness of the situation. And as we were leaving the church, the director of the seminary, Alexander Kazinka, just said to us, tomorrow we begin. Well, the next morning at 5.45, I headed for the train station for the hour-plus ride to the seminary so I could have breakfast with the seminarians. When I got to the place... Everyone was amazed. Was I all right? Was I worried? Worried about what? I had no idea what was going on up above ground. I was underground. You all saw it on CNN. But without television set or radio in the dingy flat we were staying, I had no idea that all of Moscow was in turmoil, waiting with bated breath to see what would happen. And I learned that later as I was making my way through the tunnels of Moscow's underground, Yeltsin had ordered his tanks around the White House to open fire and the beautiful white building was going up in smoke. Some of you remember those images. We were there. It's hard to believe that was 29 years ago. The following decade was quite chaotic as the Russians tried to move toward a more democratic society. But when Yeltsin died in 1999, the movement died with him. Vladimir Putin had succeeded him as president when he resigned and he quickly took control. The former KGB agent became increasingly autocratic, not only to consolidate his power, but to restore the glory of the Soviet Union under Russia's flag. From many sides we heard, we heard clamoring for a savior. Someone who would take charge, stamp out the chaos, revive the nation's pride, and put a proud nation back on the map. But let's fast forward to 2022. In the West, we had come to imagine that the days of the Cold War were long behind us. Indeed, people under 40 seem hardly aware that it ever existed. How time flies. Until February 24th, when his troops invaded Ukraine to demilitarize and denazify the country. And now look where the world is. This international crisis comes in the wake of a global COVID crisis, which by the end of April had infected more than a half billion people and taken the lives of more than six million worldwide. 
Have you ever thought about it? That is more than the entire population of 34 of 51 of our United States of America. A whole state wiped out. And with this pandemic have come economic and social and cultural and mental woes that few of us could have imagined on January 1 as recently as 2020. Many in this country live in constant fear. Overnight, our images of ourselves as a nation have changed, and suddenly we stand face to face with the reality that we are not as secure as in, or invincible as we thought. All it takes is one little virus to upset everything, and now there's this monkey virus going on. There was a time when those who were left of the Israelites found themselves in this sort of context. The date is 540. The place is Babylon, where the exiles from Judah, the last remnant of the once proud nation of Israel, languished under the Babylonian rule. This nation, Israel, which under David had been one of the foremost powers in the eastern Mediterranean, it was gone. During the reign of Solomon, it seemed all roads lead to Jerusalem. Everybody came from all over the world to see Solomon in all his wisdom and all of his glory, which in turn was interpreted as a reflection of the glory of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But that was then, and this is now, and now we're stuck in Babylon, the foreign land, subject to the insults of the nations. Oh yes, we're making it economically okay, and the Babylonian authorities treat us tolerably. They value our contribution to the imperial economy, but our experience has left us with a deep crisis of faith. When outsiders ask us, where is your God, your God, what shall we say? We once flourished in Zion, the Lord's city, but what good does that do now? The Lord has abandoned us. We once trusted in Him, but He has betrayed us. We thought the Lord had chosen us to be His people. We thought the Lord lived in Zion and had chosen David as His king to rule in victory and righteousness, and His sons would sit on the throne forever. But Zion is gone. David is gone. We are gone. The Lord is gone. Everything's kaput. Finished gone. Where shall we turn? Well, where do you turn? For the Jews in Babylon, their exile raised all kinds of questions. Where is God when you need Him? It seemed like God had died, either that or He had willfully abandoned them. God's people were totally disillusioned. Many of them shook their face in his face and said, we trusted in you and you failed us. Others were simply demoralized and they lost the will to live. They lived in a world where Marduk is king. Babylon. But for the Israelites, this was a world without hope. Death seemed better than life. 
Wait. Listen. Do you hear what I hear? I hear a voice. But what's it saying? I, I can't quite make it up. Shh, quiet. It's getting louder. It sounds like a messenger with an important announcement. Let's see if we can hear, figure out what he is saying. Wake up. Wake up. Clothe yourself with splendor, O arm of the Lord. Wake up as in days of old, as in former ages. It was you who hacked Rahab in pieces that pierced the dragon. It was you that dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the abysses of the sea a road the redeemed might walk. So let the ransomed of the Lord return and come with shouting to Zion, crowned with joy everlasting. Let them attain joy and gladness. Let sorrow and sighing be done. Isaiah 51, 9 to 11. Wow, I can't believe this. You mean Yahweh, God, lives? Shut up, there's more. I hear more. Wake up, wake up. Oh, Zion, put on the clothes of splendor. Put on the robes of majesty. Jerusalem, holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall never enter you again. Get up, shake off the dust, sit on your throne, Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive one, fair Zion. Isaiah 52, 1 to 2. And then we come to how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For every eye will see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Is that not a glorious text for a dark world? What a magnificent vision of God it presents. What a word of hope for us today here at College Church. The rest of Illinois may, may be uh, you know, eager to find out what happens in the NBA playoffs or the NHL playoffs or all kinds of other trivial things like that. I wonder what you're waiting for. Maybe you're waiting about something much, much more significant, good news. But would that God would return with such drama and such power, even to us this morning, that he would arise as king in this place. Here, the Lord reigns. But what difference would that make, you ask? Well, to answer the question, let's take a little closer look at our text, verses 7 to 12. And I, begin, I will address this under three questions. First question, what is so great about the Lord's rule? What difference does that make? Well, chapters 51 and 52 of Isaiah consist of a series of 
evangelical proclamations. I use that word intentionally. Some of us are hesitant to use this word these days because it's so loaded with political connotations and ugly nuances. But the word means good news. And that word is here. The Hebrew word is twice in this text. The good news. Well, but before he gets to the good news, we run into verse 7. It's a bit strange. How beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news, the gospel. When I was younger, I used to imagine what kind of feet the prophet was thinking of. Are they size 12 like mine, or size 7s like my older brother's? Would these be Michael Jackson's feet, or Michael Jordan's? Can't you just see it? Well, I've learned since that the prophet is not really excited about nice-looking feet. This, what excites him, is something else. This is a figure of speech literary folks call synecdoche. Now, there's the word of the morning, synecdoche, a highfalutin word. It's very, uh, has strong devotional significance. But it means simply, you refer to one part of an entity that represents the whole. And in this case, these are the feet of a person, a messenger of good news in a world where all the bad news has been bad for 50, or all the news has been bad for 50 years. It sounds like our world. And it gets darker every day. Just pick up the newspaper. No, don't. It's too depressing. It's, too, it's clear that the proclamation at the end of verse 7 constitutes the heart of this brief section. The feet of the man who announces your God reigns. That's what makes his feet beautiful. It's his lips that transform his feet into beautiful parts of the body. Your God reigns or your God is king. This is not simply a slogan to be shouted out in some excited religious celebration or put on the bumper of your car a bumper sticker. No, this is a proclamation of a prophet to people who are doubting the power of their God. In the ears of the exiles, your God reigns will have taken, special, taken on special significance. You see, for the past 50 years, those who lived in the city of Babylon had had to listen to the Babylonians shouting every year at the climax of the New Year's festival when they recited or performed a, a, a literary text, a religious text known as the Enuma Elish which contains the Babylonian creation story. But at the end of this great document, you have the words over and over, Marduk is king, Marduk is king, Marduk is king. How confused that must have left many of the Jews. The annual celebrations in Babylon struck at the heart of their faith. And to many of the Jews, it felt like the Babylonians were right. 
Marduk had defeated the God of the Israelites. Well, into, the, into this air comes the voice of the herald who quotes the words of Isaiah the prophet from 150 years ago. Our God reigns. Marduk is not king of the heavens. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is. My brothers and sisters, in many quarters, the church today finds itself in that sort of state like the Jews of Babylon. We're under siege. We're in captivity. All around us we see forces of evil and idolatry waging war on the kingdom of God, and they seem to be winning. In many places the church is in exile, languishing in despair, paralyzed by skepticism and immobilized by doubt. Christians have become the laughingstock of the world or the targets of their rage. And we're tempted to throw in the towel. Why not join the Babylonian celebrants? Why not accept the prevailing religious ideas? What reason is there to hang in there? Why not forget about church and go out and… I could be golfing this morning. Or let's worship the gods of the land, our basketball and football heroes, or our favorite American idols. For all practical purposes, our God has died. Our God has been defeated by the superior forces of evil. Our God has abandoned us and left us all on our own. It's into this dark and despairing world that the message of this herald rings down through the centuries. My friends, I announce to you, see my beautiful feet. The Lord reigns. God is not dead. God has not abandoned his true followers. God is alive and well and throned in the heavens still. And he's eager to break into our hearts and our lives, each and every one of us here. Our God reigns. What welcome messengers we would be if this were our refrain. If all of us this morning as we leave, we all have these beautiful feet. What a beautiful sight that would be. And our lips would be celebrating the kingship of God. It's time we recognize his lordship over all of us and over all the kingdoms of the world and over all the forces of darkness. Our God reigns. But what difference does the presence and rule of God make? This is the second question. In a world and in our personal lives, well, Isaiah spelled out the answer with three remarkable expressions. This means peace. This means, well, let's use the Hebrew words, teach a little Hebrew. This means shalom, tov, and Yeshua. Three beautiful words to match the beautiful feet. Our herald proclaims news, good news of peace. Now, of course, that word, shalom, speaks of more than just cessation of hostilities. I mean, we are all wishing that in these days they'd stop killing each other in the Ukraine. 
and have a truce. But we all know that that wouldn't last anyhow. Before you know it, it all break out again. By shalom, we don't mean truce. We mean everything is put right. It's not just the cessation of hostilities. It means restoring the balance in life, restoring the symmetry, and engaging really in covenant relationship so that we always treasure the well-being of the next person more important than ourselves. If only that could happen over there. If only that could happen here. But this was the message of the angels when Jesus, Emmanuel, God is here. When he was born, glory to God in the highest and on earth, shalom to those on whom his favor rests. Oh, how our world needs that. Shalom. The second word, tov. ESV translates this as happiness, but that's too trivial light, I think. It really means good, good fortune, well-being. In Deuteronomy, it means the Lord's lavish blessing. For the Lord to bring goodness, he must lift the curse that hangs over our heads. But it's much more. Like shalom, tov is a covenant term reflecting the Lord's desire, the covenant Lord's desire, for the well-being of his people. According to Psalm 23, you know this one. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days. No, that's too weak a translation too. It means surely goodness and chesed, mercy, will hound me all the days of my life. The word's not simply follow. It's the word that's used of a cheetah chasing an antelope. Hound me. So that instead of sending after me the hounds of fury and wrath, God sends after me the hounds of goodness and mercy. That's it. And then the third word, Yeshua. You know that one. Victory, triumph, salvation, deliverance from bondage, from which we get the name Jesus. Remember Matthew 1, 21? You read your New Testament. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? One of the few people in Scripture whose name describes the person who wears the name. Most of them don't. This one does. Jesus is Yeshua, Savior. Well, we could apply these words at three levels. For Israel, it meant deliverance from Babylonian rule, return to the promised land, and the restoration of peace and prosperity like Ezekiel dreamt of in chapter 34. For the world, this means salvation in the fullest sense of the word. We who are dead in trespasses and sins need to hear Emmanuel. God is here. We need to hear the name Jesus, Savior. We need to have the burden of our sins lifted. God in his mercy and grace reaches out to all to lift this awful curse and replace it with his blessing. For the church, this means deliverance from the bondage under which we seem to be languishing, release from the plagues of sin and discouragement and delight again 
in the blessings of God. This is what we all need. This is that for which we pray. Let the Lord reign. This is the only answer for all the problems of our world. And the sad thing is, for the problems that plague our big cities and our governments and whatever else, we think, just pour more money into it. No, that's not the answer. The answer is a visit by the gracious King of kings and Lord of lords. Let there be peace on earth, and let it begin with me. Would that a herald of the Lord would come running up College Avenue today through the door back there and down these aisles and announcing the arrival of the divine King. The Lord is here. The Lord is here. And oh, that the peace that this offers would seize us all and inspire us. Third question. This good news leaves us with a question. How should we respond to this messenger with a beautiful feet? (laughs) Quickly, our text offers three suggestions. One, we are invited to join the celebration of the kingship of the Lord. I sometimes imagine, I grew up in Canada. Some of you can tell it by my accent or whatever. I grew up there, and I sometimes imagine what would happen if Her Majesty Elizabeth II would invite me to Buckingham Palace for a great celebration. Wouldn't that be something? That's what the King of kings and the Lord of lords is doing. We are invited to a celebration of his kingship. Look at how contagious is the herald's message in 52 verses 8 to 9. The watchmen of the city are the first to catch sight of the herald skipping over the hills, and they're the first to hear his announcement, and their response is immediate, spontaneous, unanimous. They raise their voices as one. They shout for joy. One might imagine here our ushers meeting us at the entrances and bursting into the room and announcing, the Lord is here, the Lord reigns. We are invited to the celebration. But the watchmen are not the only witnesses to the return of the king. The text says, our translation, some of our translations say that every eye will see him in his return. Well, that's not actually quite what it says. It translates, translates literally eye to eye or eye by eye, they will see him. And we tend to think of, well, this is the people looking at each other. Did you see this? Did you see this? Eye to eye. No, 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 no. It's eye to eye they will see the Lord. This triumphant march of the Lord will not occur in some distant corner. He will be so near that we will be able to see the whites of his eyes. <laughs> Do God's eyes have whites? Does God actually have eyes? He sees everything. But of course, another figure of speech. This is poetry. Wow, the divine king is here, and we are gathered to join in the celebration. But there's more. The herald calls on the ruins of Jerusalem to raise a shout for joy. Burst into songs, you ruins. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed the city. This reminds me of... 
Jesus' rebuke of those who wanted to stifle the children. You remember on Palm Sunday? Shut up, kids! And what does Jesus say? If these will not cry out their hosannas, the stones will cry out. And the whole cosmos will get involved in celebrating the kingship of the Lord. Number one, we are invited to the celebration. Number two, we are charged to prepare for the procession by purifying ourselves from the contaminating evil of the world. Verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels. You see, this is a sacred moment. Everything here is sacred, and you daren't come in contaminated. The triumphant reigning Lord calls for a holy procession. Those who would step in line must rid themselves of sin. They must decontaminate themselves of the stains of the world and present themselves pure and spotless. We heard of this from Kara, didn't we? Her problem with the contamination of the world, and it's our problem all of us. Whoever would march in this train must walk with him in white, a refrain that we hear over and over in the book of Revelation. It's easy to get caught up in the enthusiasm of celebration, but it takes much greater concentration to put aside that which drags us down. Maybe this is the greatest challenge for us. Put it away that we might join. Third, We are invited to march in orderly procession behind the triumphant king. Now, of course, it reminds us of the Exodus, remember, when they came out of Egypt as as a whole host of people with arms held high. We're out of here. But they ate that Passover meal in haste because we've got to get out of here. Pharaoh is still there. But there's nothing here about haste. Ours is not an escape in haste. The herald invites us to a victory parade, a parade that makes the ticker tape Desert Storm veterans parades of 1991. And they tell me that 5 million people attended the New York parade then. But this is kindergarten. And of course, so is the parade we had here for the Blackhawks in 2015 when we celebrated the third Stanley Cup triumph. Two million people were downtown. But that's puny. The Victory Parade makes that one and the Rose Bowl Parade and any other parade you've ever witnessed look like kindergarten stuff. The one who leads the way is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and there are no threats to his kingship anymore. The divine king invites us to march in his parade to celebrate his kingship, his triumph over all the world, all the forces of evil. My friends, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, our Savior, as we look to the future. May we do so with our priorities right. Thy kingdom come. Let's abandon our own kingdoms for His.
Our future is not dependent on a human king. The futures of our church in particular and the church universal depend not on our governments, but they depend on whether or not we will let the Lord be king in this place. The Lord reigns. May we acknowledge His kingship this morning by pleading for His forgiveness and pleading for the white robes that He would place on us through the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And may we do this in confidence and gratitude that we've been invited. This is not an entitlement. We're such an entitled people these days, aren't we? No, no, no. It's all of grace. The victory has already been won, but we are invited to celebrate. For those who doubt whether it's been won, we need only to look to the cross and to the empty tomb. Paul gives his interpretation of this in Romans 1. Jesus the Messiah was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, but he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. In his death and resurrection, Jesus our Savior proclaims his sovereignty over all. And in this gathering today, We declare our solidarity with Him and His people all over the world. My friends, your God reigns. Our God is King. One day, every knee of every creature in the cosmos will bow before Him. Whether they want to or not, but they will. What a privilege is ours to do so here, voluntarily, this morning, to demonstrate our gratitude, our homage, and submission to Him as we leave this sacred place and return to everyday life of work and play, education and learning, and family and community with beautiful feet. What a difference that would make if we would go out declaring, living His praise for the glory of God the Father, the praise of His Son, King Jesus, Yahweh incarnate, and empowered and driven by His blessed Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious God, Creator of the universe, Lord of all. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior, through whose work peace and goodness and salvation can be ours. We pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude, and may we bow in submission and homage with lives transformed and lips ready to proclaim your praise. To the glory of our Savior, we ask this. Amen.